You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting the Black Man with the Gun Show. This week, episode number 507, we're talking about Chicago, the gang problem, a suppressor, and a conversation with UFC fighter Tim Kennedy. All that coming up next. This is the Conscientious Weekly Podcast that talks about firearms and things of interest to the gun community. Don't let the name scare you. This is the pro-fun, pro-gun show with history, commentary, news, interviews from all over America. Hi, my name is Ken Blanchard and I've been a gun rights activist since 1991. And you just discovered the show with over 1.7 million downloads with celebrity guests, new products, and good people making a difference. After John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, let's get this party started. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. This week, I got an awesome show for you this week. My man, Michael, talks to an army buddy. That just happens to be a TV star, a firearms instructor, and a retired UFC middleweight champion. Yeah, his name is Tim Kennedy. And saving that to the end of the show, pretty much. But it's a nice long interview with some good stuff in there. You know, I was watching some of the protests that happened. And one of the phrases that comes up quite often is, no justice, no peace. You know, that's like a bastardized version of what Dr. King said. The original quote was, there can be no justice without peace, and there can be no peace without justice. All too often, the first thing we do when adversity appears is to focus on the negatives and all the problems in our life. Failure and adversity are only present in our life to help us, not to hurt us. It's extremely important to never lose sight of this truth. Dr. King's formulation contains no threats of violence, veiled or otherwise. He was making a universal point in a particular political context, observing that the anti-war movement, peace, and the civil rights movement, justice, were mutually reinforcing efforts. I see these two struggles, he said, as one struggle. By fighting a war against the self-determination of the Vietnamese people, the United States was, in Dr. King's eyes, propagating injustice. To fight against segregation inside the country's borders without opposing unjust exploitation of the Vietnamese people is to fail to recognize that, in Dr. King's words that day, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Without justice, the thinking goes, peace will be an elusive goal. And without peace, injustice is bound to continue. Just thought I'd share that with you as it popped into my head and just some clarification of how things have just changed over time and people are not really looking at and looking for the truth. Was that too deep for you, too quick? All right, here's a quick joke for you. What did the lawyer name his daughter? Sue. 
If you are not a part of the gun community, it's a good chance you don't understand the fact that guns do not equate to violence. The term gun violence really means that violence is being caused by guns. Makes sense, right? Well, see, violence is really caused only by evil people. Evil is the problem. People that have no regard for life is the manifestation of that evil. People that will murder others for territory, being dissed, wearing the wrong colors, or competition in the illicit drug trade are criminals. We can't legislate behavior. Gun control doesn't work because criminals don't follow the rules by definition. Criminals don't buy their guns from gun stores and go through the process of background checks that can discover them. They steal guns. They buy them from other criminals. They take them from others. And they buy them on the black market. Politicians know this. These highly educated elected officials that have police and armed security protecting them. But they also know that people that are not in this gun community are easily manipulated by the rhetoric. See, guns are a hot-button topic, in case you didn't know. There are people with a phobia against firearms. Colonel Jeff Cooper called it hoplophobia. They have found that the easiest way to appear effective is to blame, quote, the gun for violence perpetrated by drug dealers and gangs. You see, the gun itself can't cry racism. It's just a machine. The gun won't vote against you. The gun is a symbol. Politicians can propose the ban on some item in the gun realm, and if it's passed, it appears like a win for them. They have proposed the ban of guns with bayonet lugs, bullet buttons, standard capacity magazines, particular ammunition, sights, triggers, the color, stock, places of origin, even the material that's made. And none of these things have stopped a crime or saved the life of a child. The successful passage of these laws has helped the politician, though. You see, we don't have a gun problem in America. We have a sin problem. Who in the world wants violence? More laws do not stop crime. It is already against the law to murder. It has been since Moses brought down the Ten Commandments. So what's happening in the place? Immortalized by Jim Croce in 1973. I bet you know the song. Well, on the south side of Chicago, in the baddest part of town, and if you go down there, you better beware of a man called, yeah, bad, bad Leroy Brown. Gangs. Let's talk about that for a minute. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past couple of years and even the past couple of decades, one of the nicest cities in the United States has been plagued by violence. I'm talking about Chicago. Since the days of Al Capone, violence and gang warfare has been in the news. I think there was an episode back on Good Times, way back in the 70s, that talked about the gangster disciples, the vice lords, the yellow lords, the black disciples, the Latin kings, all have been around. 
Since then, they've split it into groups. A lot smaller, but even worse. You ever wonder why kids join a gang? They do it for protection, status, and reputation. We've lost a generation. A generation that's used to violence, to death, to murder. Reputation is a form of capital to these little kids. According to stats from a Newsweek article, roughly 90% of this violence flows from gangs. And the rivalry that police say led to the death that's happening all over goes back to the 60s. In all honesty, I found out that it's just not just Chicago. Some 80% of the nation's largest cities and half the country's suburbs report significant gang problem. But Chicago's gangs are different. First, there's a scale of the problem. With some 100,000 documented gang members, Chicago has more gang members than any other city, with the possible exception of Los Angeles. Researchers estimate that gangs account for at least half the homicides in those two cities, a number so large that together they make up about 20% of all gang-related killing. And it's been ongoing. The 15th district's murder rate surged in 2012 due to a part of a feud that broke out within one of the area's largest gangs, the Four Corner Hustlers, a faction of the gangster disciples that controls the area's lucrative marijuana trade. Most police departments would have responded by, quote, flooding the zone with additional officers, a tactic known as a hotspot policing, and perhaps targeting the Four Corner Hustlers for narcotics. But in fact, the police department has also had some trouble financially. They've scaled back, and as well as they've scaled back on social working, scaled back on volunteers. Budget cuts reduced the number of anti-violence social workers who once cooled those simmering feuds and a series of deadly police shootings and alleged misconduct by police have torpedoed the relationship between cops and residents. In 1999, he started demolition of the notorious Cabrini Green Project. And he did it all over. They started taking down uh, Lennox Gardens and a couple of other really, really big places that uh, held a lot of the poor. Well, once they displaced all these people, they changed that dynamic. They crushed the gangs in one way, but they spread them like you would if you cut off the head of a hydra. You made more hydras. And these smaller groups, they're not just random. They have agency they have structure and it's not random and that is gangs don't necessarily know why they do what they do but generation after generation they shoot one another and all the violence is rooted in the illegal drug economy many guys have allowed this economic depression and desperation to cause them to resort to these measures the economy is terrible and this is where they go I just gave you a short rundown on the history of why violence is so bad on where it is and how it got to where it is. I don't have any solutions for right now, but maybe if more of us would look into the problems, the causes, the the people, and look at it as the people, maybe we can fix it. On the website, I got a couple of videos about um, Chicago gangs and the violence that happens there because they're smarter people than me watch and listen to my show check it out I wish it was something as simple as having a bounty maybe if we had the gun industry different 
don't know, maybe if Daniel Defense or somebody with some really deep pockets put out a bounty for people who hunt and kill innocent kids. And we got these jokers off the street. If we could make some jobs, put some stuff there so folks will have some hope. Now, I know you didn't subscribe to become a gun rights activist or maybe just because you own a gun, you don't quite understand how this has to do with you. But see, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Martin Luther King said that. I know for a fact that the people who are in this community are amazing. They're the kind of people that you love to have next door. You care about stuff. I know you don't understand how somebody can be so ruthless, so violent, so absent of feeling. What happened to them? And maybe you say you don't have time to worry about them because they're way over there or they're down the street or they're not in my neighborhood. But here's something I realized. The problem that we have in Chicago, the problem with the gangs, the problem with the violence in all our cities is our problem too. This portion of the show is brought to you by the United States Concealed Carry Association. But we're in the same boat now. The USCCA has been providing education, training, and self-defense insurance to responsibly armed Americans since 2003. Join Tim Schmidt and myself here at usconcealedcarry.com. All right, one of the things that happened when I was in Vegas for the SHOT Show was they had a an announcement and the release of Silencer Co.'s Maxim 9mm. Now, this is a an amazing pistol that it's a little steep. It cost $1,499 plus the additional $200 tax stamp, but it is hearing safe. It is the firearm of the future. It's a firearm that already has a suppressor built into it. Now, this is not the first time somebody's done this, but it's the first time in my lifetime that um, something's been for production like this. The first time I've ever seen one was there was a OSS um, high standard 22 pistol. Looked kind of like a, a very, very long Luger. And it was used by CIA, uh, the OSS before it was called the CIA. And they had a couple of them in the armory when I was working as a firearms instructor. And I got a chance to actually take one out and test fire it before they put it up or gave it to a museum. I forgot what happened to it, but I know I've shot a couple of rounds through it. And it didn't cycle that great, um, but it was cool to shoot a piece of history. And it made me want to get one right after that. I thought, man. I got to get a silenced weapon, a suppressed weapon. Um, There's a whole bunch of reasons for why you would want one, too. Yeah, really. It's not just a cool factor, but actually can save your hearing. A silencer or suppressor is basically good for your hearing. Did you know, according to the National Institute of Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, 15% of Americans between the ages of 20 and 69, that's like 26 million people, have high-frequency hearing loss due to exposure to noise at work or doing leisure activities like shooting. This includes tinnitus and acute ringing of the ears. 
And if you don't think gun owners are at risk, just attend an NRA meeting and look at all the folks walking around with hearing aids. OSHA has determined that the threshold for noises that are safe to the human ear is 140 decibels. And just for reference, normal conversation and me right now, I'm speaking at about 65 or 66 decibels. Fireworks are 162 decibels. A balloon popping is 125. A cap gun sometimes is about 155 decibels. And a bolt action 308 Winchester rifle is about 158 decibels per shot. Silencers or suppressors, they're both interchangeable, decrease the decibel level of a supersonic firearm by 14 to 45 decibels, depending on the silencer, the load, and the firearm to which it's attached. On average, a commercially made silencer reduces that 308 decibel by 30 degrees or 30 decibels, producing a decibel level of 128. That's under the 140 decibel threshold, according to OSHA. Another good reason for a suppressor is hunting. As the country grows more urban, hunters are finding themselves chasing game closer to where we live. Anytime guns are discharged near a non-hunting public, the chance of confrontation is huge, and silencers can help that. Also, it's good for defense. If you get into a gunfight while defending your home, you may survive, but your ears will likely sustain permanent damage. Sound waves were bound in the close confines of homes, sending them directly back into your eardrums. I know a guy who actually had a fight from his car, a police officer, and he's deaf in one ear. And because of that damage, he has vertigo really, really bad. So he had to get retired as a police officer. Even one shot in a home or a car could mean permanent damage to your ear. So why not outfit your favorite home defense firearm with a suppressor? And if you don't like that added length, you could begin with a shorter barrel. So why do I want this pistol, which you can see the picture of it at blackmailthegun.com for this episode? Well, again, it'll be a collector's piece for me. I can pass it on to my great-great-grandkids. You know, we got to do that whole estate thing and the NFA thing. It's a whole bunch of rules when you own something that's on the NFA list, which is so wrong. But I will do what you have to do to comply. And with the manufacturer's retail price suggested of $1,499, that's not going to be something I'm going to be just giving anybody. The pistol uses a proprietary delayed blowback action with a fixed barrel. It does not have a recoiling slide like conventional pistols. Instead, it has a breech block, which runs on two guide rods that connect to the barrel. Like most modern pistols, Silencer Co. has moved away from the manual safeties and opted for a trigger blade safety. It also made the smart choice of having its pistol feed from readily available Glock magazines rather than a proprietary one. Interestingly, the Maxim 9 has a key mod attachment point commonly seen in rifles rather than an integrated rail. It also has a red dot mounting point cut into the suppressor assembly above the barrel. With the weapon's fixed barrel, this provides a stable mounting point that will retain zero. Silencer Co. is the owner and the maker of this bad boy, and they've launched it um, with this line of a uh, hashtag fight the noise campaign, calling for the lift of restrictions against civilian ownership of suppressors. 
know, the campaign has been a part of the push to pass the Hearing Protection Act, the HPA, which was recently introduced or reintroduced to Congress recently by Republican Senator Mike Crapo. Now, when I was first reading this, I made the notes and I thought, Crapo, that ain't no real name, but that's a real guy. Michael Dean Crapo of Idaho. Mm-hmm. And uh, the legislation has garnered media attention due to its support by Donald Trump Jr., who has publicly advocated for the deregulation of suppressors. It's about safety, Trump Jr. said to a September video interview with the founder of Silencerco. It's a health issue, frankly. And you'll see uh, that video, hopefully, I think I have it, will be on the show notes as well. There's going to be some long show notes for this episode. Now, while the Maxim 9 it looks pretty big and muzzle heavy, I'm sure it's going to be just too cool to have anyway. Looks like Robocop's gun to me and uh, looks like it's made for science fiction and just time for that stuff to become real. Check it out when you get a chance. Being an armed citizen it means having a gun with you all Proud the time. Loud here. Carrying a firearm every day requires a holster that is both concealable and comfortable. Whether you choose our Super Tuck Deluxe or Mini Tuck, you'll have the confidence that comes from being discreetly and comfortably armed, prepared to face unforeseen dangers. Crossbreed holsters are handmade in the USA, come with a lifetime warranty and a two-week try-it-free guarantee. Order your holster today at crossbreedholsters.com. All right, next up, I got a real treat for you. My main man, Michael J. Woodland from m-wtactical.com, talks to one of his former Army buddies, who is a recently retired UFC middleweight fighter by the name of Tim Kennedy. And Tim Kennedy is a boss. He's a firearms instructor, combatives instructor, and now shares some great insights into both worlds. He's the owner of SheepdogResponse.com, teaches firearms and fighting to law enforcement, to first responders, to the high-speed, low-drag kind of folks. The guy's intense. And the conversation between these two Army buddies is a little explicit. Thank you, Ken. And which welcome to an explicit tag for this show. I am Michael Woodland but of m-tactical.com. And today we're going to have a discussion with Tim Kennedy. If you are someone who follows people in the military, the UFC, and even the show Hunting Hitler, then you know who Tim Kennedy is. I had the opportunity and plenty of times to meet him and even trained with him. I reached out to him and asked if he was willing to have a conversation, and he accepted. All right, today we're on the phone. We got Tim Kennedy. How's it going for you, Tim? I am doing fantastic. Hey, that is good to hear. Good to hear. So um, I want to go ahead and start this off by asking you, um, how's retirement from the UFC treating you? Uh, it's been the most fantastic week of my life. No, uh, but nearly so. You know, I've been a professional athlete for almost 20 years. And uh, for the past seven days, I have been retired from professional fighting. Um, it's a disservice to say I'm, I'm retired because I'm working more than I've ever worked in my life. But... Uh, I won't be getting punched in the head for money, which is a really exciting proposition for the future. Gotcha, gotcha. So now, can I ask you, um, how is um, this MMA association that I read that you're a part of, how is that going to tie yeah. in with you 
not fighting now? So the Mixed Martial Arts Athletes Association, uh, you know, my role in it will remain the same. I'm, I'm going to be a spokesperson for it. I'm going to be a board member, and I'm going to be actively recruiting people to be part of it and uh, going after all the things about uh, the sports that need changing. You know, I'm going to be going after fair compensation. I'm going to be going for medical for our fighters. And, um, you know, so that these guys, when they retire, they're not living below poverty with broken bones, broken knees, broken backs, broken hearts, and broken, broken brains. That's um that's a good thing though coming from the UFC because um I honestly thought that once y'all hit the UFC everything was set for y'all until I read this one article and it's pretty much like y'all was getting undercut underpaid and just getting dealt wrong. <laughs> yeah, that is the perception. It's like once guys make it to the UFC, you know, it's like you've made it to Major League Baseball. You're made it to the NFL. You know, you did your time in college. You did your time in uh, the semi-pro leagues, and but now you're fighting on the biggest stage in all sports. Uh, yeah, that's a misconception because we got guys that are making, you know, every time they fight, they're making, you know, $12,000 to fight, $12,000 to win. And you're like, oh, that dude just made $24,000 to fight? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> then he pays his agent and his management, and then he pays his coaches, and then he pays for his medical, and then he pays for his flight, and then he pays for his hotel room, his coaching hotel rooms, you know, and then he's negative. Like he literally did not make a single cent, and he fought on the biggest stage in all of sports. Yeah, like I said, that to me when I when I heard that the first time I heard that it was about um, it was in regards to um, the sponsorship deal, whereas like y'all couldn't get sponsors other than you had to wear Reebok or something like that that I read about. And I was like, man, that's kind yeah. of baloney right there. Kind of jacked up. That, it's a bummer deal. You know, uh, like I said, I've been retired since Monday, or since last Tuesday for seven days as of today. And, um, you know, I used to be limited about the apparels. I could, the apparel sponsors I could wear. I could represent a gun company. I'm a special forces sniper. I'm a Green Beret, a Ranger qualified, and I can't represent a gun company. You know, like, uh, I run a defense, like, my full-time job is I run a defensive tactics company that teaches military and law enforcement how to shoot, and I'm not supposed to be able to say I shoot a gun. It's crazy. Uh, well, you know, I've now been retired for seven days, so I'm, I'm uh, doing real work again. <laughs> That's nice. Actually, you know, I'm retired as of today, so I'm happy. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, let me ask you one more question in regards to fighting, okay? And... For instance, like my buddy Colton Smith, and you know that's your buddy also, and you took him under your wing, and every time like he would tell me like he was training up for a fight, and he would always talk about cutting weight. How does cutting weight work for you? Um, you know everybody ever has a different process. I'm I'm a big massive dude. You know I'm, I'm a 220 230 pound guy that fights at 185 pounds. Um. So if everything happens on schedule, you know, like I, I have it on a calendar laid out exactly how much I'm going to weigh, uh, by the end, I feel fantastic. Uh, this last fight, for instance, 
you know, I was uh, I was supposed to fight at UFC 204 and then UFC 205, UFC 206. I had to make weight for UFC 205, and then I fought again, or then I had to make weight again at UFC 206. So my body weight went from, you know, 225 to 185, 220 to 185, and just smoked, just destroyed me. And um, I, uh, it was a detriment to how I performed. You know, my body, obviously, as a 37-year-old guy, couldn't handle, you know, maybe at 24 I could have done that, but now at 37, that hurts. And, uh, you know, I thank God I'm not going to ever put myself in that kind of position again where I have to deal with that. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Yeah, I was, um, right after your last fight, I was talking with my buddy, uh, Michael White of NH Firearms, and I was telling him, like, I've actually trained with you before when I was out in Texas doing something with the combative school at Fort Hood. And when I told him, I was like, when I looked at him, I was like, yeah, I can take him down. But it was like that time when I had my hands around your legs, I was like, man, this dude is so strong. Like, what in the world? <laughs> I, I, it's like, I just lost my mind right then and there. But I don't know if you remember that or not. 100% remember. That was, that was a fun night. I was oh. in uh, Chris Perkins' gym. Yes. Uh, at, in Colleen, Texas. Yep. Was we, uh, it, it was almost like we were in a slip and slide. It was so sweaty in there that night. Yeah. And, um, that was the night we was, um, working on wrestling. And, um, and I kept doing, cause I never wrestled in my life before, you know, and, um, I really got into combative scene in the military, just like majority of everybody else. And then you just kept yelling like, um, this is wrestling. This is not jujitsu. This is wrestling. And that's when I looked at my buddy Dirk and I was like, this guy will make a great coach for um, the tough house. <laughs> so um, has, has that even came into talk for you or anything? Uh, I mean, to a degree, uh, we're seeing our response. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coach of sorts. You know, I'm, uh, I'm on my way right now driving to Houston, Texas, to teach a shooting and fighting course to law enforcement and military. Um, you know, we got SWAT guys, NARC guys, vice guys. Uh, you know, de-escalation of force, graduated response, cuffing. So, it, well, I'm an instructor. Even as an instructor, you're still coaching. So, it's uh, I'm I'm never probably going to be in uh, in a combatives room teaching combatives. Uh, you know, I, I might come in for for courses and classes. I'm hoping General Mattis puts an emphasis back on combatives. I believe that it's important. I think that, uh, you know, the warrior spirit, the warrior ethos, and the, the mentality of a warrior can only be earned. It's not something that you're born with. The only way they earn it is through blood and sweat. You know, it's, uh, there's a reason why the Spartans were badasses. There's a reason why the Samurais were so good. There's a reason why we, you know, during World War II uh, and beginning of Gulf War just, goal stump everybody because we earned our right to be there through blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, I think that's kind of lost in the past few years, and I'm hoping that we get it back. Oh, yeah. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. All right. So now, since we're talking about my favorite topic of shooting, um, let me ask you, what is your favorite handgun, and what is your favorite long-range rifle? Oh. How long range? Um, let's take it out to at least 
let's say 1,200 meters. Okay. Um, right, pistol first. Uh, we're just talking field carry, uh, race gun, like three gun stuff, or just everyday, like uh, all the range. Let's let's go with everyday carry. Pistol. Yeah, let's go everyday. Carry. All right. Um, so my everyday carry is a Glock 43. Oh um, man, <laughs> go ahead. I'm just messing. <laughs> my uh, kind of my range shooting every day, shooting, um, like the, the gun I, I wear when I'm teaching is either a 226 Legion or a Glock 17 or Glock 34 or Glock 35. That's what I'm teaching. Um, I, I run the gun that a lot of departments run because I don't want guys to see me shoot a trick race out gun and, um, and I lose credibility. I, I want to shoot what they shoot. So, um, when I go up and I do something, you know, if I do a a draw, aim, and fire at one second, I'm doing it with the same gun as they are. Right. Yeah, I mean that, that makes sense. So I, I can relate to that. Yeah. All right. And then sniper rifle, I'm gonna I'll go with the, the caliber first, the 338 Lapua. Mm-hmm. Um, big fan of that bullet for anything past a thousand meters, and uh, the platform is either a McMillan or a Barrett. Both. I've used extensively, and, uh, I, and I love the bow. Hmm. Not a bad combination. That's not a bad combination. So, um, I honestly didn't know um, you were into weapons like you were until, like I, like I told you before, I talked to Colton. But um, he was telling me about um, when you had did that one competition on TV against um, the other special forces from the other countries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's called the Ultimate Soldiers Challenge. That was it. It's just a shooting competition. Mm-hmm. And me and a fellow Green Beret were up against uh, a couple of, like, contractor guys from, uh, like, the Blackwater types. And then, the, then we're up against, uh, uh, I think, Swiss or, I don't know, somebody. I don't remember who it was. It was like, you know. Special forces versus special forces from around the world in a shooting competition. Yeah, that was um that was a pretty intense episode because like I was all into it because you know like I said I was rooting for y'all anyway. So. Well, so yeah, it's television. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. So if you go back and watch it, even though it feels like it's really close, like we stomped them. Like we had six events and we beat them in six events. So we went six and zero oh in a different and the six different things that we competed with them against. Right. Uh, and then if you go back and, like, look at it and try to do it without the television and cutting, going to commercial, uh, we doubled their score in every event. Wow. So I mean, it was like, in the, I mean, the, during the time when they're filming it, they're, they're, they're coming to us like, hey, man, can you guys, can you guys like, uh, like shoot slower or could you, uh, like, miss some, maybe? And they were like, uh, I mean, no? Is that an option? Can we just not miss? Mm. Wow. Yeah. And actually, you know, um, Colton had told me that story, and I was like, no way, man. He told me, when I actually talked to you, actually, and you will tell me that. Yeah. uh, It's uh, television for you, though. We got to make it tense. Oh, yeah. All right. So now... um, can you tell me about your company, um, Sheepdog, or Sheepdog Response? Yeah, um, it, it's super straightforward. 
It's a uh, defensive tactics company that I'm I'm one of the owners and the head instructors. Uh, my, my my other two partners are Blake Case. He's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He owns a uh, self-defense gym in Oklahoma. And then Chris Max, who is a uh, master gunner out of Texas. Um, so, you know, the kind of premier small arms expert for the state. So three of us are the head instructors for the company. We bring in what we think and feel are the best shooters and fighters on the planet. And um, we run these two to five day long courses. And in a, in a, in a 12 hour period, you, you fight for five hours, you shoot for five hours, and you have about two hours of medical classes about how to keep blood the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and repeat for, you know, somewhere between two, three, five, seven days, depends on who we're teaching. Right. Uh, you know, the one that we're going to right now, we have, uh, James Head, former UFC fighter, NCAA wrestler. Uh, we have Trevor Prangley, I think one of the, one of the pioneers of the sports of mixed martial arts, also black belt judo, also a black belt jiu-jitsu, also former, uh, top 10 ranked in the world, uh, mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, those are the guys, those are the type of guys that are teaching the hand-to-hand portion. So I don't believe in, in these wazoo, throat chop, brachial attack, break the wrist and walk away stuff. I believe in knowing the basics, understanding the fundamentals, and being good at it. Um, and, and we have that same approach to shooting. Uh, whether Chris, myself, Alex uh, are the primary instructors on the flat range, we, 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 we start with the fundamentals of marksmanship. I don't care if you're the coming from the tip of spear, most elite you know, units on the planet, tier one type guys, when you come to our course, we start from the basics. We build our platform. We go from the fundamentals of marksmanship, from your good stance to a good grip, to good sight pitcher, good side alignment, good breath control, good trigger squeeze, good follow through. All of those things. We drill, and then we then we graduate from there. That's it. Since I'm um, since I'm done retired out the military now, I'm gonna send you my resume because I am turned on for that now. Better shoot a lot. Better be in shape. Oh yeah. I remember you were when you came to Fort Hood. Oh yeah. You know the. Uh, I stay in shape now. <laughs> the idea of, uh, you know, kind of who we are occupationally. Um, you know, like if you're going to take on the responsibility uh, of having the knowledge and experience of with a gun, and the implied task is that you, you know, you're in shape. You're you're mentally and physically capable to save and take a life. Uh, that, that's a big responsibility that we don't take lightly. Right. And, uh, and we, we, man, we, we batter people that come to our course that think they're ready to, you know, like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready to go fight ISIS. Blah, blah, blah. Like, bitch, you can't even get off the bench and run 50 feet, and shoot a target, you know, <laughs> shut up. Yeah. All right. So now, um, tell me more about the sheepdog, survival fund so when we started this company we very quickly realized that military and law enforcement units did not have the equipment or the training that they need to to really be proficient at their jobs that sounds crazy 
that, you know, the guy that you when you dial 911, the dude that shows up on your door, uh, doesn't have the right training or equipment to do his job. But it's the truth. A lot of times, uh, their departments are understaffed and undermanned. You know, when, uh, when the National Guard gets activated, you know, Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina, riots, um, whatever it is, these soldiers that show up, they don't got the right stuff, plain and simple. You know, we've had people show up and have never put on a tourniquet before. We had guys that uh, had never shot, the police officers had never shot a shotgun or a rifle before. Um, they didn't carry tourniquets on the belt. They knew how to use one, but their departments didn't have money to buy them. So the Sheep Dog Survival Fund, we're trying to be the stopgap between what is supposed to happen and what actually really does happen. The equipment that they actually have and the equipment that they really need. Uh, so when we got a guy that shows up to our course, it's like, oh, man, I mean, I, I, I understand how to use tourniquet. You know, like I, I've been to the class. You know, I did the, uh, the TCCC class or I did the CLS class, but my department can't afford them. So, cool. Here you go. Here's a tourniquet. Put it on your duty belt right now. Man, that's, to me, that sounds awesome because of um, I do believe, like, of course, you know, some cities are more capable of doing stuff like that versus uh, another city that's not. But I think that bridging the gap, I think that says a lot about you and that company, you know, for yeah, I mean, coming forth like that. Another thing that pissed me off uh, is, is the current climate within the, the military nonprofit world where you got CEOs, executives taking paychecks of, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Every single penny that goes into the Sheepdog Survival Fund goes directly to the military, to law enforcement or first responders. Every penny. Nobody's getting a salary. Nobody's flying on a first-class jet. Nobody's buying themselves, uh, you know, a new Wazoo watch. Everything that you give goes directly to the soldiers, police officers, firefighters, and first responders that need the training and equipment. Yeah, like I said, that that is awesome. And um, that right there is something that a lot of people need to get behind and help you push this even further than what you are doing right now. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's a brand-new nonprofit, but we are a 501c3. You know, if you want a tax-free donation, you give it to Sheepdog Survival Fund. You know, if, you, if you've if you been giving to, I'm not going to call names out, but if you've been giving to a nonprofit that you found out has been misusing your generosity, you this is Tim fucking Kennedy talking right now that says, I'm not going to waste a cent of something that's given to the Sheepdog Survival Fund. That's it, right there. I'm telling everybody, get behind it. Support it, 100%. All right, so um, something happened not too long ago, and I found this very funny because, like I said, I know how you are on a personal level, you know, meeting you a couple of times and actually talking with you. But um, it was right before one of your fights, and um, the drug guy came to your house, and I literally said, this guy was lucky because you actually asked the question. But around this same time period, the FBI contacted you and said, ISIS has you on, like, they're going to get you. So can you tell us more about that? Uh, so essentially, ISIS 
I uh, was recruit Selby in Central Texas to find out where I live and come and kill me and my family. The FBI contacted me and said, hey, little FYI, um, you know, a bunch of dirt bags. They're trying to find other dirt bags to come and and uh, tussle with you. Um, so I was kind of on, you know, not red alert, but definitely the, the, the key to launch the nuclear weapon had been inserted into the um, key receiver, and I was had my finger hovering over the red button to launch. Um, and uh, as a UFC athlete, you are available to be tested by the United States Anti-Doping Administration at any time, day or night, wherever you are. Um, I went to Texas, and this dude comes cruising up into my driveway, and uh, you know I didn't know anybody was coming. FBI just told me that somebody's trying to kill me, and uh, I was. You know, I was like, hey, who are you doing? I didn't say anything. I'd already drawn my gun, and I was thinking about what was going to happen to this dude. Had he not had his hand sticking out the window saying, I'm you, Southern Inspector, don't kill me. <laughs> yeah, I was, um, me and a couple of my buddies, we was laughing. Because at, at first I thought it was a joke. And then um, I read, like, two or three articles about it, and I was like, come on now. And I think I actually wrote Chris Perkins at that time and asked him, was this real? You know, and um, and then they were talking about it on, um, I think it was on one the UFC um, commentators, like, in between the fights, and they was talking about it, and I just kind of, like, laughed at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, uh, you got you to remember who your target, your audience is, you know. Um, I realize that they show up to regular athletes' houses to watch them pee. Mm-hmm. I am not a regular athlete. Right. Um, never have been, never will be, and... Don't be cruising up to my house unless I know you're coming. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All right. So now let me ask you, um, moving on to the next topic, um, how did you get on board with hunting Hitler? Oh, it was, uh, they were recruiting somebody that knew how to use ground penetrating radar that could fly a drone, could speak Spanish, had been to South America, had contacts in South America and to some degree hunted humans before. Um, that narrowed down the population of people <laughs> pretty significantly right. uh, to pretty much me and about 10 dudes that I know. Uh, and once they kind of had our 10 names, they did interviews and, uh, and they liked me and, and then off to South America I went. Nice. Nice. Now, I can't say, like, I don't watch much TV, but um, that is one of the, um, the shows I do like to watch, you know, and, um, you know, of course, because you're on it, but anybody in the military could have been on it and I could have watched it. But there's a lot of history in there that I think a lot of people can get from it, you know. So is there going to be, like, a season three? Yeah, so it's the number one show worldwide on the History Channel. Uh, people love it. They love it for the reason that you, that you just said. You know, it's it's historical. Uh, it's accurate. The investigators that that are part of it, Mike Simpson, myself, uh, Gerard Williams, uh, and the historians are all legit guys. Uh, Bob Bear, Sean Sensich, got guys that have the reputation experience uh, to really change history. And I think people are watching live that unfold. 
You know, every time that you turn that show on, one, you're getting real history, and two, you're watching a real investigation occur right in front of you. Yeah, I'm, I was, like, really amazed by that show because when I was stationed over in Germany, um, I remember I had asked um, one of the German um, guys that was driving us around, and I stated that I wanted to go to the spot where um, Hitler had, um, that, that bunker where it got destroyed and where he supposedly killed himself. I wanted to go there. And he was like... No, nah, man. He said, that's not true. That's not true history. That's what they tell us, but that's not true. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, you know, Hitler escaped and went to Argentina. And I was like, I never heard that before. And then, of course, when I started doing research and it was like, it was more rumored. But then when your show came out, that really piqued my interest because just two years ago, I had that conversation with a German citizen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, when you go down to South America, it's, it's not a question. You know, when you're in Argentina, when you're in Brazil, uh, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, it's not if Hitler made it out. It's not even when Hitler made it out. It's just how long he lived that affluent life in South America. It's not a question there. Everybody believes it. Wow. That is something. That is remarkable. Well, like I said, I will be looking forward to season three. And at the same time... One day soon, we're going to have to link up and go to the range and do some shooting. And actually, um, me and Michael White, we're looking at the dates to try to get our dates together, whereas we can come to a sheepdog response course. And yeah, like, you got to kind of do it. Oh, yeah. So, so much fun. Right now, um, I was looking at March, but I'm going to have to push it to after March because I'm busy for February and the March time frame. So yep. I said, I keep going on the website, and um, I'm going to hit it up as soon as um, the dates for April and further come out. Well, we're going to be uh, we're going to be better about putting dates um, to coming courses up on the website. Uh, that has been a problem because of my schedule, uh, having to you know obviously I have to deploy. Uh, when I was fighting full time for the UFC, I never knew when they're going to want me to fight. This last fight's a perfect example where I end up in what was supposed to be a two-month fight camp. I end up in a four-month fight camp. And, um, you know, so I missed. I, I ended up teaching a sheepdog the Monday after my fight. So I fought on Saturday. I flew home on Sunday. And I walked into to the range to teach shooting with a busted-ass swollen face. Wow. That's dedication right there. Yeah. Yeah. This is how it goes. But um, come to it, man. It's life-changing. It's hard. It sucks. It's work. You know, I like don't don't think this is a gentleman's course. We're not yelling at anybody, but our our expectation of uh, people that come is high. We want people to be shooters, and we want people to be fighters when they show up. Everybody can come. Everybody will get better. If you've never shot a gun before, I've had people show up to a sheepdog course who have never shot a gun before, uh, which is fine. I'll have somebody that'll be there to help you, but my expectation is that that we want people that are shoot shooting fight fools. That is it. Like I said, me and uh, my buddy, we will be there. And like I said, um, and when I show up, I will be taking pictures, and then we will be making history. 
It's fun. I'll tell you that for sure. That is it. That's all well, my friend, I appreciate you uh, getting me on here. It's been fun. Hey, no problem. Um, like I said, we appreciate you um, having us um, or taking the time with us. And at the same time, um, we will be staying in touch with anything new coming with you in the future. I appreciate it. You have an awesome day. Hey, you too. Be blessed. Tune in next week as we tackle another area of marksmanship for another tips and review segment. Thank you for all those who follow and support the M-W Tactical Facebook page. If you haven't done so, look us up on Facebook and hit the like button and join in on the many discussions that are taking place. If you are more into photos, follow me on Instagram at mjwoodland where you can get an up-close and personal involvement of my daily life and involvement at a shooting range. If you would like to read more about us, do so by going to www.m-wtactical.com where you can easily connect with us on any of the previously mentioned social platforms while looking at pictures, viewing future classes, ordering products, emailing us, or even listen to the current week of the Black Man with the Gun podcast. For those who want a more direct approach, just call us at 803-250-1256 and let's discuss whatever is on your mind from shooting classes or just inviting us to come out to your upcoming event. Until next week. Keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Thanks, Michael. You know, this past week has been been pretty good. I'm waiting for confirmation, a phone call, a call back from all the many people that I met when I was at SHOT Show and hoping I have some, some great news to share with you in the future. But in the interim... Take a peek at blackmailthegun.com. I'm trying to clean it up a little bit, make it more professional. Also, creating a new YouTube channel. Check that out when you get a chance. On Twitter, I'm blackmanwithgun. There's no A there. And on Facebook, blackmanwithagun1. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me. And if you liked what you heard, please tell somebody. Dr. Martin Luther King said, We've learned to fly the air like birds. We've learned to swim the seas like fish. And yet we haven't learned to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. Until next week, just in case nobody has told you this today, I love you. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Shalom, baby. <laughs>